Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Stick to Wrestling has it all. We have dancing and scungias, free parking, pizza by the slice, you name it. I want to invite you to follow me on Twitter if you do, if you would, excuse me, like to do that. Um, just search John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Um, I don't just stick to wrestling. We were talking about Boogie Boy, the guy from the Devo mascot earlier today. That was fun. Uh, also, if you would like to discuss the episode you're about to hear or discuss any of the almost 300 episodes we've done, join our Facebook group. All you have to do is go to Facebook, uh, search Stick to Wrestling, ask to be put in, and you will be put in as soon as I see it. Um, we're doing more on the WWF February 1984 Uh that has gotten a really good response. James Dimmick reached out to me and said, John, I just wanted to shoot you a message to tell you that the 1984 expansion episodes have been glorious. You've been doing the Lord's work over there, brother. Thanks and keep it up. Thank you, James. And if you want to share that opinion or maybe we'd have a differing opinion, like, hey, you guys are doing a little bit too much of that. I can handle it. Don't worry about it. Join the Facebook group and let us know. Oh, one other thing. If you would like to donate to this uh, ad-free, free-to-listen-to show, uh, my PayPal is at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. No amount is too small, and certainly no amount is too large. Steve Generelli wanted me to remind everyone that these were recorded in 2021. I think this one was like July or, or August 2021. So... Some of the information may be a little bit outdated, like uh, Don Kernodal, we were talking about him, and he had not passed away yet. Just one example. But like I said, you're listening to something that was recorded two and a half years ago. It's generally not topical, but, you know, if we if something has changed since then, uh, that's the reason for it. And, you know, it was a, a glorious time. You didn't have to talk about the Vince McMahon's latest scandal. You didn't have to deal with people's reactions to Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. You get to escape all that and go back to a a happy, happier normal time when we were all wearing masks in public and stocking up on toilet paper and fearing for our lives as the wrong person breathed upon us. So, once again, February 1984, 40 years ago, let's talk about it. And today, usually we want to get off on the best foot possible, but this is going to be the worst opening ever. Ladies and gentlemen, Ivan Putski. Last week I wanted to stay for you, but you know the promoter said no way, but I'm going to do it anyway. I feel good today. You know my great-great-grandfather, you know what he told me? He said, if it feels good, do it. Well, you know what? I feel good and I'm happy every day. You know why? Because I do it every day. Sometimes twice a day. Moya droga ya chekoka. Means that I love you 
Gentlemen, I bring on my co-host Steve Generelli. Steve, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing good, uh, John. It's great to uh, know that Ivan Pusky was ready to bring his brand of entertainment to the rest of the world. Yes, that was from St. Louis, and it's kind of weird. Like we look at St. Louis as this. I don't know. Sometimes it has a rep of in the '80s of being like this really stuffy, overly old school place. The crowd loved it. I mean, you you heard the audio, you didn't see the video, but the crowd was actually into this. I mean, like pretty much everybody. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've talked about this before in some of our previous segments. Uh, St. Louis in the older days was really a a sports-based promotion. They promoted pro wrestling like it was a regular sport. They didn't insult the audience. Uh, They weren't really big on gimmicks, obviously. But I know it was a very heavily ethnic area. There were a lot of Italians. I'm sure there were a lot of Poles, uh, different people of ethnic groups. And uh, like you said, uh, when Putski did his thing, the fans really bought into it. And uh, I don't think that would go over so well today. But uh, back in that day, uh, people really embraced it. I mean, you never know. I was When I first saw that, I was very surprised by the crowd reaction. St. Louis. Let's talk a little bit about St. Louis. Here's a story that I read a million years ago. When the WWF first started in St. Louis, um, there was a rule, a commission rule, where you could not jump off the top rope. Well, Jimmy Snuka was either unaware of this rule or he didn't care about it, and he jumped off the top rope and the commission at ringside freaked out. Everyone went backstage and they're like, Jimmy, you know, it's St. Louis, you can't jump off the top rope. And, yeah, you, you did it, but it's okay. And then the next match on the taping, Snooker Snook jumps off the top rope again. And this time the commission is like, look, we're we're going to think shut down this show if you guys don't knock it off. And I don't know if Snooker, you know, was just too out of it on that, on that night or just, you know, felt like he was bigger than the, the Missouri State Athletic Commission. Yeah, it's probably a little bit of both. <laughs> they probably, uh, Snooker just was doing his own thing. I don't know if Vince had a way of reining him in. And uh, maybe he just didn't understand. But, uh, you know, the WWF in that day, day uh, they were pretty, uh, you know, uh, cutting edge, I guess you'd say, and kind of uh, being uh, a little rebellious in that era of going to new markets and bringing their brand of wrestling. And uh, Snuka was definitely uh, one of the premier attractions at that time. Now let's talk a little bit more Ivan Putski. Ivan Putski had been a top guy in the WWF. Uh, since he arrived in 74, he most of the time he wrestled in the WWF. He occasionally would, you know, tour Florida or tour Texas, you know, just to get a little bit freshened up, if you will. And he had been with the promotion now since 1982. That was the last time he made his return. 
And he, Ivan, he was a big deal up here. But as as McMahon starts bringing in more and more talent from outside the WWF, Ivan is clearly a a victim of that. He's a guy who got pushed aside and was gone early nineteen, like the very beginning of nineteen eighty five. He was gone. Yeah, as we progress in the weeks to come, you're going to see where he uh, right now he's able to gain uh, wins, maybe DQ wins over the biggest talents in the WWF. He's going to start to lose some by DQ and and gradually move down the card a bit. Uh, I do know he reappears in 85. He even participates in the Wrestling Classic, the first pay-per-view uh, after WrestleMania 1. And he would reappear periodically, I think, uh, maybe a little bit in 86, definitely a little bit in 87. He came back for some tag team stuff. But uh, uh, Ivan Putski uh, was just a perennial long time, like you said, since the mid-70s. He had an earlier run in the AWA, very popular there as well. But uh, yeah, this is a changing the guard. Uh, him along with Strongbow and Patterson, two other uh, you know very very popular uh, homesteaders in the WWF, about to be phased out. Well, here's here's what I'm thinking too. Now I know Ivan Putski is not popular. Was not popular with the newsletter crowd, um, with the smart fans. He was never a great worker. He was never even a good worker. Who am I kidding? But I have always thought that if Jim Crockett Promotions had brought him in, and I think they should have brought him in. He's you no know, no worse than a lot of the guys they had, like Jimmy Valiant. Valiant was an effective babyface, and I really think that if in 1986. They hired him while he was, you know, not doing anything. He would have drawn houses in the Northeast, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, wherever, you know, the NWA went or in the Northeast. I think they could have done Ivan Putsky against Ric Flair for the title. Yeah, yeah, they could have definitely done something like that. Um, I'm just trying to think maybe because they did try to go that route or at least they saw that Ganya tried to go that route with Backlund when they did the Pro Wrestling USA deal, and they saw that you know Backlund was kind of looked upon by the fans as old, too old school, too old fashioned. They may have clumped Putski in in that same uh, regard, thinking his his time has come and gone. Uh, let's not go back to him. But I, I think you're right in the sense of if they had just used him occasionally to pop a crowd, I, I definitely see what you're saying. He could have been like a another Jimmy Valiant or another Bugsy McGraw in, in W in the NWA or Crockett, and uh, and but do that on the Northeast scene, and and I think he would have done just fine. He would have been. I mean, and there's other factors, too. I mean, would Putski have taken the gig? I mean, he he worked ICW, so I can't see why he wouldn't work the NWA. Uh, the thing is, you know, when until Jim Crockett got bought out, there also seemed to be just very little interest in the in JCP bringing in uh, WWF leftovers. It just It just seemed like, you know, that's not what we do. Yeah, I, I guess about the closest they came to doing that was in 87. I know there's a lot of hubbub about them bringing in Greg Valentine, and uh, there was even rumor that if he did come in, he could potentially be a fourth horseman. Uh, that may have happened. Uh, and I, I think he, he may have even have had some success if he came in there. Uh, but then again, uh, I'm sure the argument would have been uh, a lot of the fans there may have just thought that, well, gee, you know, we've seen him in the mid card of the WWF. We don't want to see him at the top of our cards anymore. But, uh, uh, you know, maybe just a freshening up uh, 
Yeah, you know, seeing him in a new territory that he hadn't been in since uh, 83, that might have been an interesting experiment. I heard from a very good source back in 1987 that, yeah, uh, both Flair and Dusty were, Flair wanted it, and Dusty was interested in doing it, bringing Greg Valentine in back to the NWA, and yes, as a member of the Four Horsemen, and it would have been, I think it would have been a disaster, and it just goes to show, you know, Dusty and, and Flair, they didn't watch WWF TV, and before you make an investment in a guy like Greg Valentine, like they were talking about, or supposedly talking about, you know, you, you have to know what's going on in the wrestling business. You just can't keep your eyes on your own paper. This is why, another reason why I think, in general, bookers should not be on the road. They should be, you know, absorbing everything they can about the wrestling business. And we're, we're a little off topic here, but, you know, whatever. No, you're absolutely right. And and the fact that they didn't bring in Valentine gave new guys like Luger a chance to shine. And uh, he, uh, and also Barry Windham, too. Of course, they became really major, major players in the NWA, later WCW. Valentine may have had a nice initial impact, but he wouldn't have been... Uh, big business long term in the NWA, but uh, it's interesting to speculate about it. No, Valentine was in a a real decline by the end of 1987. We have done January 1984. We've talked about all of the uh, all of the television that we can get our hands on, the arena results. Now we're moving on to February 1st in Dayton, Ohio. Where we don't have results, but we do have that the that at the Harrow Arena they had an eighteen man ten thousand dollar battle royal that seems to be where they're going all over the place with this and it doesn't say who won, but I'm guessing Andre the Giant. Yeah, they they had done a lot of that, like you say, especially in the Midwest and also on the West Coast, where where battle royals had been a big business in the '70s and early '80s, and uh, having Andre win was uh, just probably made more sense than anybody else winning. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I think if he's on the car, he's winning the battle royal. But one thing I'm going to talk about, you know, as we go over the results, and this is this is about to go away. Um, the WWF would run you know, arenas throughout the Northeast, and it was cool going to them. It was cool looking at the results because Boston Garden, Madison Square Garden, Philadelphia Spectrum, etc., they kind of followed what was being presented on TV. You know, the the main event was uh, Bob Backlund against the main, the main heel. Now it's going to be Hulk Hogan against the main heel. But and these some of these house shows or these um, smaller house shows, it's almost like the promoter pulled names out of a hat and just said, "Okay, these two are going to wrestle." <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. If you look at a lot of these results uh, from early '84, you're not seeing like great rivalries or hot TV angles. You're just th- seeing the the top top guys against maybe the uh, the B stars of the roster and. Just kind of almost random matchups. Uh, it just seems that they're maybe just playing it a little bit safe, playing a little bit neutral until they had these bigger matches like the what we eventually have with Slaughter against Sheik and eventually Piper against Snuka and, and when Hogan gets going with his feuds. But uh, Hogan definitely at this point, they're just having him you know wrestle challengers, but there's no big program, no big issue involved. 
uh, aside from the rematches with Iron Sheik, which barely seemed necessary compared, uh, considering the fact that Hogan wiped him out in like six minutes. Um, so yeah, you know, ba- Hogan basically, except for that, really didn't have a program at all, you know, at all in the year 1984. Yeah, and, and that, I think that was very smart in retrospect because, uh, you know, if you were a WWF fan and you had been watching the product, just these changes that we're, we're, we're observing now and watching on TV on a weekly basis, like uh, we see uh, Backlund lose the title at the end of November, we see Hogan win the title in January, uh, by next month in February or this coming month we're going to have uh, Sheik and the Slaughter begin their feud, and you know it's just a slow buildup. Uh, but these big events are happening, and Piper is just about to debut as far as the pit, and the uh, momentum will soon be shifting, and it'll be like a runaway freight train before you know it. Yeah, we just went over uh, ending last week, uh, January 1984, where a lot went on. And believe me, 1984 was a, a pivotal pivotal year in professional wrestling. Uh, so much changed. By the end of the year, it was unrecognizable. Uh, also, February 1st, 1984, Hulk Hogan is still in Japan, pinned Rosha Kimura in a non-title match. Now, the next night, we are at the Cincinnati Gardens. Uh, once again, we don't have results, but the matches were Tito Santana versus Mar- uh, Don Morocco uh, for the Intercontinental Championship. These two are officially a program now. And then we get a really weird tag team match. And this is what I'm talking about when I'm like, I love these just just random uh, matches. Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson defending the tag team titles against the Iron Sheik and Tiger Chung Lee. Yeah, that is a a very unusual uh, matchup. I I don't think I've ever seen that matchup, and it probably never happened again. But uh, that is is a unique uh, pairing of uh, Sheik and Tiger Chung Lee together. My guess, and it's only a guess, is that for whatever reason, Mr. Fuji couldn't make it that night. Then we have, as we were talking about, Ivan Putski, the older school guy against Paul Orndorff, the, who is still brand spanking new. I think he debuted in October. And Andre the Giant in the main event against the Mass Superstar. <laughs> Two really big guys. Yeah, and, and this is an interesting match as we look back on it now because in about... Uh, Two years later, they would team up together as the Machines uh, during the summer of 86. Definitely a brief run there before uh, he becomes, or Mass Superstar becomes, Act of Demolition. But I will point out, it's interesting to look back in these early days. Uh, WWF had only been running shows in Cincinnati since 1983. And as far as what they were drawing, for the most part, they were drawing about 3,000 fans a month. Uh, they were running Cincinnati pretty much every month. And you're, you're saying to yourself, gee, why do they even bother? But the interesting thing is uh, these 3,000 fans a month, once these guys start appearing on MTV, you know, later in the summer, and then the LJN dolls come out, and then the Hulk Hogan Rock and Wrestling debuts, and before you know it, they're going to be on NBC the following spring with Saturday Night's main event. Those 3,000 fans a month would soon become 7,000 and when Hulkamania really hits its stride, it'll be way over 10,000 fans per show. So this is just the beginning of the WWF, but uh, the fans uh, were in for a treat if they jumped on board and got on that train. 
Yeah, and for I mean, obviously Cincinnati's in the loop. You know, they're the wrestlers are driving by car, so your your expenses are low. Now, on the same night, I'm going to correct myself, in Comac North High School gym, we had Rene Goulet defeat Jose Luis Rivera, who was getting a push on TV. Uh, Mr. Fuji, so he wasn't a no-show in Cincinnati. They really booked that match. Again, uh, defeated SD Jones. And this is what I'm talking about. These, these just crazy, random matches. Uh, the Wild Samoans, all three of them, Afasika and Samula, defeat the Invaders and Chief J Strongbow. Yeah, that, that, again, another weird matchup. Uh, I doubt Strongbow teamed up with uh, his team uh, again. Uh, maybe that was one of the only times he ever teamed with those uh, partners. Okay, and White Plains, New York is the next night, February the 3rd, 1984. This is a Friday night. Uh, Mr. Fuji defeats Chief J. Strongbow, who con- continues his, his sad decline. And then I, I absolutely would have loved to have seen this match. You know, this couldn't have main evented Boston, but I would have gone to Worcester or Providence to see this, or certainly Manchester. Bob Backlund and Jimmy Snuka, I had no idea they ever teamed defeat Offenseek of the Samoans. Wow, that that is a really uh, unique matchup, and I, I'm sure, uh, you know, we don't have a gate uh, on this show, but uh, they had booked that for the whole month, uh, just the uniqueness of having... Uh, Backlund and Snook against the Samoans, and the you know the Westchester County Center wasn't a uh, big uh, big building. Uh, they may have sold out for that. And um, and I I will say I recently saw a a shoot interview with uh, Perry Saturn, and apparently uh, he he was on a tour with Backlund and Snooker together. I I think it was uh, either. Yeah, I'm thinking near the end of the 90s, and it may have been in Japan, and he said there was big-time heat between Backlund and Snuka, a big-time dislike between the two. And it makes me wonder, when did that begin? Did that begin with the Nancy Argentina thing, or was it before, or was it after? But I, I definitely found that interesting. I think that was like 97, 98 in that war, W-A-R promotion in Japan. I think you're right, yes. Okay, yeah, oh, I had no idea that there was major heat between them, and I mean, if you think about it, Bob and Jimmy were about as as different as two guys could be. Bob Bob would have an occasional beer, maybe even more than, uh, more than one, but he was a pretty straight guy, and we've all heard the Jimmy Snuka stories. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you couldn't have picked two people completely opposite than these two. Oh man, and that stinks too when you're, you know, when you're not getting along with someone, but let's face it, locker rooms are close quarters, so it's, it's something you want to avoid. Hulk Hogan is still in Japan in Sapporo. He is teaming with Iron Mike Sharp. We talked about this last week, and he they were defeated by the team of Antonio Inoki and Akira Maeda. Yeah, and Maeda, um, I'm pretty sure we're going to start seeing him on some WWF house shows as we enter the, the year and continue in 84. Uh, he would end up working some house shows and even some TV tapings for WWF. And I think this is where he really uh, found his dislike and distaste of American wrestling. Yeah, I got to see Maeda a couple of times in Boston. I had no idea who he was at the time. Um, that they they gave him like no push whatsoever, and we'll, we'll we'll be talking about that as we go on. Now, before we get into the TV for February fourth, nineteen eighty four, let's listen to Gene Okerlund speak with Paul Orndorff and Roddy Piper. 
But if you went out of Tampa, Florida, from Glasgow, Scotland, Rowdy, Roddy, Piper, and gentlemen, you've made your mark to the World Wrestling Federation and here in St. Louis. Well, let me tell you something. You know, Rocky Johnson, you know, Rocky Johnson, I told you and I told everybody else, you know, he wasn't man enough to throw me out of the battle royal face to face. When my back was turned is when he did his damage. But I also did my damage. You see that head there where it split open? Had eight little stitches in it, huh? Eight stitches. Well, you're lucky that I didn't put 152 stitches in your head because I tried to. That's exactly the way it is. You cost me $30,000, Rocky Johnson, and I don't mind telling you. I tried to put you out of professional wrestling. And when I get you into that ring again, I'm going to try to put you out for good. I just didn't do quite good enough. Eight stitches weren't quite good enough. But I can promise you this, that when it's all over and done with, you're going to be in a body cast because I'm out for one thing. That's to make Mr. Wonderful. I am Mr. Wonderful. Nobody humiliates me. Nobody does nothing to this face, to this body, to this 21-inch arm, baby. This is for real. And you saw the damage it can do. I'm going to tell you right now, Rocky Johnson, if you're a man enough, if you got any guts, you show up in the St. Louis, and you know who your master is, brother. You know who he is. Rocky Johnson says, he says, I don't give a darn what I got to do. Well, that's quite obvious you're getting in the ring. You obviously don't care for yourself. He says, St. Louis, my home away from home. Well, you drove cab here for 12 years. You should know every street in St. Louis. Come in here. We're going to put it real simple for you, Rocky. When it comes next time and Mr. Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful, I'm watching his back. You see, we don't let the thieves stop us from enjoying our watermelon. Think about it. I thank you very much, Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff, and I'm certain everybody totally aware of what happened. The last big card here in town between himself and Rocky Johnson. Once again, all audio we're using is for review purposes only. And, you know, it, it's just going to happen. 1984 was not 2000 and in 2021. I mean, there are some really cringeworthy moments that occurred on these interviews, like Paul Orndorff telling Rocky Johnson that you're going to find out who your master was. Yuck. Yeah, yeah, and and Piper talking about the watermelon. It, it's it comes off so dated and so uh, pathetic and uh, ugly. It's just uh, pretty embarrassing when you look back on that stuff now. Um, but I will say uh, on a positive note, trying to ignore that ugly stuff. Uh, Orndorff uh, really comes off strong as a, uh, a great heel there. I mean, you really believe what he's saying. And uh, Piper, even though he's uh, channeling Ernest Angley, the TV evangelist, you can see what he's doing. You can see he's pretty effective. But uh, I really liked Orrin Darf as a heel. And, of course, Piper would soon become uh, really the star of the WWF uh, besides uh, Hulk. Yeah, he was clearly the number two guy and, um, you know, the the superstar of the heel end. Uh, by the way, they were talking about the Battle Royal that took place in St. Louis, which I have not, I don't think I've seen it, but anyway. <laughs> Championship Wrestling, the A-Show, Saturday, February the 4th, 1984. Tito Santana defeats Bill Dixon. Tito Santana's big push continues. Yeah, he... Um... He had everything the WWF was looking for, just a unique look, uh, you know, young in his prime, uh, only improving and getting better. And uh, he would really be one of the very uh, top stars, top tier stars, uh, uh, right beneath Hogan's uh, level in the WWF, along with guys like Steamboat and JYD uh, on the face side uh, in the mid-80s. 
and and he would continue to be a, um, a star for WWF until the early nineties. He was. He was really good. It seemed like when he first returned in the summer of 1983, he had been gone since uh, right around the middle of 1980. It didn't seem like he was going to get a big push. It seemed like he was going to get, I don't know, kind of a Steve Travis-like push. And that turned out, I don't know if they had all always planned on pushing him hard or if they just, you know, changed their minds after a while. They said, hey, if they said, hey we have something here. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that's how it was because uh, one of the tapes that you sent me, John, uh, from the end of '83, uh, uh, there was a moment where they're showing him uh, uh, hyping uh, maybe a TV match or an important match against Iron Mike Sharp, and you know that was big enough at the time. You know, kind of the middle of a card. But within a month or so, he's challenging Morocco for the IC belt, and that's something we'll talk about later in the show. Yeah, totally. All right. Um... Let me see. Next, we have the Samoans against S.D. Jones and Steve Lombardi. Uh, the Samoans made an absolute mess out of S.D. Jones in this match. Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas run in to make the save. So you think we're going to see what we normally see. The Samoans, you know, get scared and run away. But no, Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson, the Samoans square off against him. And Rocky, Rocky and Tony took a beatdown. Yeah, I mean, and that that was interesting. I mean, usually um, typical WWF booking, and the heels end up with their uh, uh, tail between their legs or running out with their manager and getting uh, ducking for cover. But uh, it's definitely good to keep the Samoans strong, and um, they they were their most effective when they were these unstoppable monsters. And um, definitely an interesting feud about to begin with those guys. Yeah, the Samoans were here in the WWF from late 1979 until right around the end of 1980. They came back at the end of 1982, won the titles. Now they've lost the titles. So they've been in the long WWF for a long time. And to me, Steve, they started feeling a little bit stale. And I, I didn't realize that, you know... At the time, the wrestling business was changing, but I'm like, man, you know, these guys, it's it's time for them to go back to Georgia or go back to Mid-South. Yeah, it, it, and and I felt that, too, as, as a fan watching in those days, just watching the TV every week and not getting any uh, uh, dirt sheets, as people like to call them. I uh, just, um, you could tell that they were uh, kind of on the verge of being on their way out, and it was a time of transition. Uh, you're going to see within the next month or so, uh, Donis and Murdoch uh, start to move in, and and they get a lot of traction fairly quickly. And and uh, before you know it, the WWF tag team scene is uh, completely different. It was way different than it was growing up. I mean, and and, it, and that is definitely a good thing. The old WWF uh, or WWWF tag team scene was was beyond predictable. It was it was not good. <laughs> This was a historic show because Roddy Piper is about to be interviewed by, oh, what was that guy's name, Steve? Robert DeBoard. Robert DeBoard. Robert De makes me bored. <laughs> it's Victory Corner, and they have a very important announcement uh, for review purposes only. Let's hear that. DeBoard and what was Victory's Corner, now the official World Wrestling Federation magazine corner and with him is Roddy Piper so we take you now to Robert Sabor. Thank you very much. Welcome once again to Victory Corner. Tonight I have two special announcements I'm very pleased to make. 
Victory Magazine, which is the only sanctioned publication of the World Wrestling Federation, is changing its name. This decision best reflects the magazine's purpose. As the only sanctioned body, the World Wrestling Federation, its new title, the new title of the magazine, changing from Victory Magazine to the World Wrestling Federation Magazine. The other important announcement is a new article that will be a regular, regularly appearing in the magazine. The new, the new article will be Piper's Pit. And with me tonight is Roddy Piper, who is the author of the new article. And I'm delighted to have him with me this evening. Roddy? Let me, just let me have this for a second here. <laughs> the, uh, I am the originator of Piper's Pit, and I'd like to explain why, uh, especially to you. Uh, you have been doing a tremendous job and uh, with a few flaws, and I, I'm trying to be uh, political when I say this, but uh, when you are interviewing some of the people that come out, possibly they intimidate you, but uh, you, with them, you the questions, the way it's kind of a, you, how can I say that? You're being kind of stupid. No, 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 you wait, no, you wait a minute. This is my show now. You wait a minute. You just wait a minute. <laughs> I'll give you an example. I see Ivan Putsky up there in the ring singing some kind of Polish song. I would rather listen to Lassie Bars than Ivan Putsky sing up here. He comes back here and you like a geek, you sit there and you put him, you say, Ivan, you're such a wonderful man. You got Tony, you got Tony Atlas, and you get Rocky Johnson out here, and they're sitting here flexing, pretending they're wonderful, they're going to the gym, and they're telling you how great they are, and you sometimes don't have the guts enough to say to them what really is happening. Hulk Hogan is coming out here. He's got a whole... No, 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 wait a second, wait a second. According to this magazine. I'll tell you what I'll bring to this magazine. This is the heat of seat right there. What I'm telling you is this. I will not pull no punches. This is Piper's Corner. Let me tell you something. I will ask questions you don't have guts enough to. I will ask questions only I got guts enough to. It's as simple as this. When RP talks, brother, people listen. That's all I got to say. Robert DeBoard goes down in flames on his final appearance on WWF TV. He was so uncomfortable. I mean, you can't see it, obviously, but he's objecting strenuously to all everything Piper's saying, but Piper wouldn't let him have the microphone back. And then it just one final indignity. He's trying to wrap up the segment, and Joe McHugh's talking over him. <laughs> well... If any of our younger fans are listening, uh, don't really, can't really look up him on Google or can't find an image. Uh, I guess I'll just say that if you're a fan of The Simpsons and you know the character on The Simpsons called Millhouse, I think Millhouse was built on Robert DeBoard, so they, they look almost identically alike. I mean, I'm sure Robert DeBoard is a nice guy, and almost 40 years later, I, I wish him well, but he had no business on TV, and I mean, you know, at the time, in 83 and 84, my friends would, would and I would make fun of his Victory Corner segment, I mean, the guy was just, a, he was as stiff as a board, I think he was a legit magazine editor, and I mean, he had the TV personality of a, a magazine editor. Yeah, he, um... You know, he may have been perfect for this role because having somebody so bland, so milk toast, and so boring be the host, and then you have Piper come on, who every week you have no idea 
you know, how he's going to insult the guy or how he's going to tear him down or maybe he's going to beat him up like Frankie Williams. But uh, it, it was completely different than what Robert DeBord was bringing to the table. And uh, and I, and actually, I do know, uh, sadly, that uh, he passed away a few years ago. And I, I know on some wrestling board somewhere, uh, they posted his obituary. And I don't think it had any mention of his brief tenure in the pro wrestling world. But uh, I think he left behind a nice family. So uh, kudos to him on that. Oh, certainly kudos to him. I mean, it was nothing personal. I just didn't think he was any good on TV. This, this victory, uh, this victory, this episode of Championship Wrestling ends with Greg Valentine against Frank Williams. Uh, those big, important rematches from 1978. Uh, Paul Orndorff gets a competitive match with Tony Gurria. Uh, Tony was good for this kind of thing. Like, it's for TV Paul Orndorff wins an important match against a guy who has a resume. In, in this match, I can actually remember watching, I, I don't know, I must have a good memory, but I can remember watching this at home and, uh, you know, and I can remember being bored and walking out in the kitchen in the middle of it. But, uh, you know, at the time, it was like uh, you were happy to see a real competitive match with, uh, you know, Gurria, who had been there since the early 70s. Uh, he was the established guy. Against this Orndorff, who was kind of like the next big thing, but you didn't know how big he would be or what his position would be. And uh, he definitely uh, goes on to prove that he is going to be one of the most formidable talents in all the WWF. Yes, uh, Gurria had been in and out since like 74. Um, You know, he'd come in, he'd leave. And then it was August 9th, 1980. he, no, he had come back before that. He wanted to talk to Larry Zabisco, and Larry Zabisco would not speak with him. He would be in the audience, and he would come down. He'd want to talk to Larry, and Larry would just brush him off. And then finally, on August 9th, 1980, uh, Zabisco had had enough of Tony Gurria and beat him up on TV. And Bruno comes out to help Tony Gurria, and Bruno's got a mic because he's doing commentary. And Gurria says, Bruno, tonight I want you to break every goddamn bone in his body. I was like, wow, Tony Gurria said goddamn on TV. <laughs> and he had been in the WWF since, and I mean, he was with the company 20 years later. I mean, good for him. Well, speaking of that angle, uh, uh, John, where Gurria swore, do you remember that one angle, I think it was 1976, uh, with, uh, I'm really taking off on a tangent now, but uh, it was with the Executioners and Chief J. Strongbo, and and Albano did a number on Strongbow, and he said, uh, in a fit of rage, Strongbow said, Albano, you son of a bitch! <laughs> do you remember that? I do. Chief J. Strongbow, I mean, as, as big a fan as I was of his, even as a, a little kid, I knew that interviews were not his strong suit. I mean, just, <laughs> it, all, he would just sit there and, and not speak, and you'd have that dead air on TV. And be like, oh, my God. Well, I, I think with him, the the just the headdress really is all he needed. I mean, just under the uh, old uh, bright lights of the TV and the almost staticky look that surrounded him, uh, he just looked like a, like a superhero of that you know late seventies era of uh, you know I guess less was more back then. When Strongbow died about five or six years ago, they were talking about it on the radio. Uh, 
the rock station in Boston was talking about, you know, Chief J. Strongbow's passed away. That's, that's that's how big he was up here. I don't, I don't remember, like, you know, Randy Savage or even Andre the Giant getting that sort of coverage when they died, but but Strongbow got it. He was a, a real presence in the Northeast. Anyway, Brian Blair makes his TV debut defeating Charlie Fulton, and let me see. Brian Blair, he didn't last long during this run in the WWF. He would be back in Florida, I would say, like, by summer or fall. Yeah, th- this first run is very brief and uh, doesn't really do have much impact in this initial run. But, uh, of course, the next time uh, they were able to pair him with Brenzel and pretty much the rest is history. Yes, exactly. During this run, he would team with guys like Tony Gurria and Eddie Gilbert, and that just kind of said was telling everybody, okay, Brian Blair is a mid-carder just like Tony Gurria. <laughs> Move on to Wrestling at the Chase. Mr. Fuji defeats Craig Carson. Mass Superstar was still around against Jose Martinez. Mil Mascaris versus John Henry, someone I've never heard of. Steve, I am going to express kind of a controversial opinion. For a long time, I have said that Mil Mascaris was so overrated. I remember the day in 1977 when he first appeared on WWF TV, and I was so excited to see this guy after seeing the pictures in the magazines, and oh my god, he's so good, and nothing could have matched up to my expectation, but the fact is, like, it wasn't that good, and Mascaris has a reputation, like I said, you know, everyone calls him overrated, Uh, superstar Billy Graham let him have it one day on Dave Meltzer's Iyata show, talking about how we're at Madison Square Garden and he doesn't want to do a job and he's moving like a statue and Cactus Jack cut him up pretty good in his first book. I think Bill Mascaris has become underrated. I see I have seen some of his stuff from Japan late 70s early 80s. He was really good, really athletic and really innovative. Yeah, I I I agree with you perfectly on that, John. I think that the uh uh, a lot of the younger fans that hadn't seen him in his real prime, which probably would have been late 60s, early 70s, they missed out on a lot of uh, Mil Mascaris in his heyday. I know uh, wrestling historians like Steve Yohe uh, talk about just how good he was. And I know Yohe had seen him on the West Coast, especially against the Destroyer. Uh, Dick Byer in those days uh, on the, in, in Los Angeles at the Olympic. So we're seeing him here. He's definitely... I would say definitely uh, a good uh, five, six years, uh, at least past his prime, even even after he had really stopped pushing him as a major player by this point. But but his body of work, his career work is very uh, impressive. Uh, the stuff in the 80s and beyond is just just more of a kind of a nostalgia act, I guess you would say. But but uh, you're, you're right. Sometimes people get kind of, uh, you know, um, torn down so much that over time they do become underrated because they've been beaten up for 20 years nonstop. So I think Mascaris qualifies in that category. Mil Mascaris, the Pete Rose of professional wrestling, the guy who's been called underrated, overrated so often he's actually now underrated. I mean, Mascaris was doing crazy stuff like in Japan, like getting up on the top rope and jumping, doing flying body presses on guys outside of the ring. No one else was doing that in like 79, 80, and 81. I think when Sayama started in 81, he started doing it. But Mascaris was a way bigger guy than Sayama. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, I, I think it just just you know combination of after pushing him to the moon and people thinking God he must be like uh, I think people thought he was like wrestling's equivalent to uh, the Silver Surfer from the Marvel comic books. They they just <laughs> imagined he was this you know larger than life uh, human being and 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 some of that was you know in due respect to his you know his movie roles and the movies would air on. TV in the 70s, I think people would see some of those, and they'd see in the wrestling magazines that he was this Mexican movie star. But, um, but yeah, I, I think all the negativity has been more in the uh, sheet uh, letter world and uh, hardcore fan world. And ever since Mick Foley said those things in his first book, uh, that did resonate with a lot of the smart fans. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, but I mean, and his tag team with Dos Caras is is magnificent from back back in the day. But anyway, before we, by the way, we don't have the results from All Star Wrestling from February fourth, nineteen eighty four. Sorry about that, everybody. Before we get rolling with some of the house shows um, and the Sunday television, let's hear Gene Okerler and speak with Big John Studd and his then manager Roddy Piper. You, the great fans of St. Louis, have now seen it, that gigantic battle royal. Come on, and if you would, Big John Studd, by virtue of your win of the battle royal, the big money. Let's see that one more time. I just, hey, what I tell everybody out there, I said John Studd, 6'10", 365 pounds. I'm the giant of professional wrestling, and I just showed you who the king of the mountain is when I took Andre the Giant. Hulk Hogan, over the top rope. The two, the only two contenders besides John Stutt. I got him out. I told you I did it. I would do it, and I did it. Now, Hogan, you are the world's heavyweight champion. You're the man at this, winning this battle royal. This is what I want. The big deal is to get that belt. Hogan, I beat you in the battle royal. And when I step in the ring with you, I'm going to step over that top rope. I'm going to walk right up to you. I'm going to look down at you. And I'm going to show you who's a powerful man. And I'm going to rip that belt from your waist. Of course, we could give him a break, John. If you want to, a week early, you could just drop the belt off at the Keel Center. And we'll come and pick it up while you're sitting at home watching Boy George. We could do that for you. Or while you're sitting around drinking your Don Perion or blow drying the three hairs on the top of the bean there, you can go ahead and drop the belt off. If you insist on coming to Big John Stud, we don't guarantee nothing but one thing. The only thing we guarantee is John Stud will be the new world heavyweight champion, and the only thing left for you, Mr. Hogan, is maybe another movie like Lassie Come Home or Frankenstein meets uh, uh, another big man. I right, thank you very much. Still continuing his discussion, Rowdy Rowdy Piper. Roddy Piper was too much. The Lassie references constantly. Uh, I, I mean, he was like nothing I had ever seen before. I mean, I had seen him in Georgia, but this was an even crazier version of Roddy Piper as a heel. Yeah, the, I think these early Piper's Pits and these early interviews that we're hearing, he's really off the, off the chain crazy. And uh, I, I think, um, you know, pretty soon, I think maybe it's the Frankie Williams Piper's Pit, he, eventually, he really hits the stride, and he really uh, kind of gets in the zone as Roddy Piper of Piper's Pit, and, uh, and he really fine-tunes his interviews. I think he's still a little haywire on these, but uh, it's interesting to see the transition from this wild man Piper to the more uh, smooth, uh, smooth-talking Roddy Piper. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, he was, you know, he, he hadn't been a heel in over a year, and it, it, it felt like he couldn't wait to get back to being a heel. All right, let's go to the Springfield Civic Center, Saturday night, February the 4th, 1984. Uh, we have the Masked Superstar defeating the Tonga Kid in the opener. The Tonga Kid losing matches in the opener is going to be more and more like what the heck was going on as this year goes on, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Here is an unusual match. Silvano Souza, who had been with the WWF for, since at least 1976 and had the nickname Souza the Loser at Jack Witchie's Sports Arena, gets a very rare win defeating Rudy Diamond. Yeah, he he was a longtime favorite, and uh, and as you probably know, he just passed away. Uh, I think last year, or, or maybe started this year. I think it was last year, and he it was, was last actually, year COVID. Yeah, and he was actually a good friend of John Arezzi's, and uh, they teamed up together in that infamous match against Dusty. But it, it's just a shame. Uh, I know um, there's a footage of him on YouTube where. Uh, him and he got Lou Albano to do a show with him, uh, like an independent show he was promoting, and he's a heel and has a feud with Albano. Uh, yeah, and this happened probably a few years before Lou passed away, and you can tell both of them had really had severe injuries from the wrestling days. They're both limping really bad, and uh, uh, they look like just a terrible uh, shape from uh, wrestling. But uh, but he loved wrestling, and apparently, from what John Arezzi said that. It was the one thing that was uh, good in his life, the enjoyable world of pro wrestling. He was a trainer in, I don't think it was his school, but he was a trainer at a school in New Bedford, Massachusetts uh, during the early 90s. Really? Yeah. I got to meet him a couple of times. Yeah, he seemed like a really nice guy, you know, very uh, uh, salt of the earth kind of guy. And and wrestling was definitely, uh, I think, the only joy that he had in his life. Well, that's kind of a downer if that's the only joy you have in your life. But Jimmy Snooker defeats Mr. Fuji. Uh, Paul Orndorff defeats Chief J. Strongbow. And then we have Andre the Giant, Tony Atlas, and Rocky Johnson defeating all three Samoans, Afa, Sika, and Samula. Andre, throughout 83 and now into 1984, he's constantly working with the Samoans. Yeah, yeah, these matches to me were just kind of like throwaways. I mean, uh, you know, certain matches like main event matches, uh, you you really cared about as a fan, like the outcome. And and to me, as a, as a serious wrestling fan, I cared about the pecking order, you know, like, you know, Patera beats Strongbow, he moves up a little bit. Uh, you know, you, you knew like certain guys could beat certain other guys, but sometimes you were confused and... Uh, but with, with Andre and the Samoans and you add in some other guys, those matches would usually just end up being, you know, Andre's team wins and, and they just kept having the same match go around the horn. It didn't really affect the standings per se. No, it didn't. And I mean, I, I, I mentioned this, I believe, last week. They were doing uh, tag teams. They were doing six-mans. They were doing eight-mans. It was just pretty crazy. And Jimmy Snooker was usually in the mix, unlike on this night. And then Bob Backlund pins the Iron Sheik at the 17-minute mark. A little too late, Bob. He's not champion anymore. <laughs> right. 
Now, Sunday, we go to All-American Wrestling. Um, Mila Mascaras defeats Gilbert Guerrero with a flying headbutt. This was recorded in 1983 in St. Louis. Uh, Don Morocco defeats Salvatore Belomo at the Philadelphia Spectrum, or from the Philadelphia Spectrum. And then Eddie Gilbert and Tony Gurria versus Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee. We do not have a result on that match. I thought Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee, actually both of these tag teams are pretty functional because you know they're good, but you know they're not like good enough to beat the real star tag teams. But at least you're getting a competitive matchup. Yeah, they were uh, they were kind of like this uh, generation's version of say uh, Larry Sharp and uh, Jack Evans. They were just uh, good workable teams that were in the undercard and uh, solid teams, but uh, definitely not in the championship mix. Larry Sharp and da- and Jack Evans. I, what a great part of my ta- childhood. Before Larry passed away, I, I needed to know how much money he and Jack spent on those those jumpsuits and those tights. I, I met Larry plenty of times. I never got around to asking him that question. <laughs> I wonder if Jack's still around. I, I doubt it. I really doubt it. Yeah, same here. All right, before we head out to this week's results, uh, let's hear Gene Okerlund speak with Tito Santana for review purposes only. Los Angeles Area Olympic Auditorium here in L.A. Saturday night, February the 25th. It's two weeks away. And what a tremendous array of professional wrestling talent on this card. Tony Atlas, side of the card, no opponent named for him. Also, Sergeant Slaughter, side promoters, have not a side opponent for him. Matches made, super fly. Jimmy Snuka out of Fiji to go against the Golden Boy, Adrian Adonis. In addition, it's going to be Iron Mike Sharp meeting the great Mexican star, Mil Mascaras. In addition, the incredible Hulk Hogan, world title defense for the new champion, the challenger to be the mass superstar. Tito Santana, come on in. Also, another great one out of Mexico. What an opportunity for you. The danger of a Texas death match, but the Intercontinental title and Don Morocco, your target at Olympic Auditorium on the 25th of the month. That's right. You know, Don Morocco, you got away the last time, brother. The referee saved you. Now we have a Texas death match. Professional wrestlers don't like this type of matches, Gene. Morocco didn't want this match to take place. I don't like it myself. I know somebody's going to get injured before the night's over, Morocco. I know you're a tough man. I know you got all kinds of tricks up your sleeve, but brother, there must be a winner. You either got to give up or you get pinned in the middle. Te garantizo, este mexicano, toda mi vida he peleado para cualquier cosa que puedo tener. Yo sé que me voy a golpear yo o te vas a golpear tú, pero te garantizo, enfrente a toda la gente mexicana, tú vas a salir como un perro y te voy a ganar y voy a ser un ejemplo para toda la gente mía. Arriba! He's the great one, Tito Santana, very, very popular with the great Mexican-Americans of Southern California, Captain Lou Albano, it is you that is tutored on Mr. Magnificent Don Morocco, and he currently is, yes, the Intercontinental oh, Champion. First of all, Slippery Gene, I'm not here to discredit the Mexican people. I don't discredit anyone's race. All I said that they were poor working people. They are class people that are known. What's they wrong with working people? They're below me. I don't approve of working people. I feel they're kind of uh, low class, let's put it that way. And I call, consider myself the elite, the Castilian, the pure Spaniard. <laughs> now let's talk about Tito Santana. Tito Santana, do you realize the importance of this match? 
Do you realize how important it can be to be the Intercontinental Champion, to proudly wear that belt? How lucrative the Intercontinental Champion, what it has made the captain? And you, Tito Santana, are a young punk, a young athlete in the prime of your life. This could establish you for the rest of your life. But only one obstacle, the magnificent Morocco and the captain filming in the tiny. We're thoroughly prepared. We contemplate a tough time. We feel you're in good shape. We feel you're quick. We feel you have wrestling ability, but we have the captain and the magnificent Morocco. I contemplate a victory. I rest my case. I thank you very much, Captain Lou Albano. Castillo. <laughs> thank you very much, indeed. Fan spectacular card, and again, I want to, if I may, emphasize the fact that there is a brand new World Wrestling Federation champion, the heavyweight champion, the incredible Hulk Hogan, at Olympic Auditorium two weeks from tonight. To meet this man, the challenger, the mass super... What's I've got the, the same feelings that the captain's got. I've got my passport ready. All things are go. They'll let me into Los Angeles now. And I'm coming after Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania. I'm coming in your backyard, Hulk. You're the pride and joy of the L.A. area. You're Mr. Top Notch, Mr. Number One, Mr. Golden Boy with the golden belt. Well, my luck has changed. I chased Bob Backlund all over the country. He finally loses the belt to the Sheik. The Sheik loses the belt to you, and you're going to lose the belt to me. So when I capture the belt, I'm going to have it for as long as I want to. Yeah, you're a tough dude on TV. You're a tough dude on the interviews with Johnny Carson. You're real bad in the movies. But this is real life, and that's a real ring, and we're going to be in a real fight. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the jury is still out. I can guarantee you one thing. It is going to be a fantastic wrestling spectacular for the great fans in the Los Angeles area at Olympic Auditorium Saturday night. That is two weeks from tonight, February the 25th. There will be two world title bouts. Mass Superstar again to challenge the new heavyweight champion, the incredible Hulk Hogan. And, of course, the intercontinental title holder, the magnificent Don Morocco in a special Texas death match with the great star out of Mexico, Tito Santana. Get your tickets in advance. It's going to be a night to remember two weeks from tonight here in Los Angeles. Okay, what is this no opponent named yet thing? I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't. I've never heard of that either. Lou Albano was also out there uh, doing his thing. I didn't appreciate Lou Albano enough growing up. He is truly one of the greatest managers of all time. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that particular interview because it was more of a low-key Lou Albano, and, and Albano could do that. He could uh, you know, have a few different approaches to his interview style. And uh, you know, I'm hoping that someone like... Uh, Someone uh, new to the East Coast scene, like say Jeff Bowdrin. I hope Jeff Bowdrin gets to hear this and and see him fall in love with Captain Lou Albano for the very first time. I'm not sure we're going to have that happen, but there's <laughs> there's always hope. Um, now, no, that was the thing. Lou Albano could change speeds. He could do an interview where he's very quiet, very methodical, very thoughtful, and then by the end of the interview, he's screaming. Or he could just come out and start screaming, or he could be low key the whole time. And you know, it probably he has no idea what he's doing when he's out there. It probably had to do with how much vodka he'd had that day, quite frankly. 
I remember one time he was on the old Eddie Andelman show from your neck of the woods, John, and uh, and 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 some guy got on, and you know Albano was fielding all these questions, and some guy got on that just wanted to trash wrestling and trash Albano, and and he he starts off like you know blabbering his mouth at, at, at Albano, and Albano said, "Why, my good man." And he just like took him back and completely like shut him down. I mean, just went, once once Albano addressed him as my good man, it's like everything changed. I mean, the guy was apologetic. Oh my goodness! I I had you wrong, Captain Lou. You're a brilliant man after all. <laughs> it was funny. I, I never heard that interview, but I mean, yeah, Albano was he was he was something else. I had no idea he was on Elman's show. Uh, let me see. Mass Superstar goes out there and does a, a great interview that was I mean, that was a draw money interview. Like, okay, you know, Backlund lost to Sheik, Sheik lost to Hogan, now Hogan's gonna lose to me. That was money. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, and this is really you know Edie's last major run as a single because after this, you know, he would work uh, AWA a little bit, he would work up in Montreal a little bit, uh, but by the time he came back to WWF, it was no more mass superstar. It was either a machine or demolition. And he's a tag team guy, and he had a different persona. So this is really the end of the run for him as as far as uh, being a big player in a big place. There was a rumor in beginning of 1984 that the real mass superstar, as the only way I knew him as, had left the promotion and the WWF was using a fake mass superstar. I don't think that was ever the case, and clearly that was Bill Eady speaking just now. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I don't think that that was the case, and uh, he, uh, I think he was just too respected for anyone to, to try any BS like that on him. I think... He was one of those guys everyone liked, and uh, I think they wouldn't have tried to uh, do something Bush League like that uh, on him. The WWF did not do so, but there was a fake mass superstar in Mid-South Wrestling. No offense to, uh, and actually in Florida too, no offense to Jerry Gray, who was under the hood, but they were promoters that tried it, and I'm talking like, you know, mass superstar mask, mass superstar's trunks, etc. Really? Hmm. Yeah. What can you do? All right. In Nohiji, Japan, Hulk Hogan and Mike Iron Mike Sharp, that tag team, defeats Akira Maeda and Tatsumi Fujinami. Fujinami was so awesome in his prime. Uh, WWF is in Leighton, Pennsylvania, February 5th. Uh, SD Jones and the Tonga Kid go to a double countout. I think this is an interesting result because they're both babyfaces, and the typical WWF babyface match around this time, which didn't happen very often, the they'd start wrestling scientifically, and one guy would start to get rough, and both guys would lose their temper and start brawling, and I'll bet that's what happened here. Yeah, it, that's, it's interesting. It's interesting to speculate how it could have uh, how it could have ended up on the outside of the ring, and uh, I think both guys. Um, you know, like to use headbutts as their finishing move. And, oh, that's right. Um, I don't know if they just fell out over the top together when they were brawling, but uh, again, a very unique matchup that, that you probably would never, ever see again. Uh, only 1,500 people in Lehigh, Pennsylvania have that answer. And... <laughs> Jimmy Snuka, and once again, you know, just a crazy random matchup. Jimmy Snuka and the Invaders defeat Afa Sika and Rene Goulet. Rene Goulet in a main event in 1984. Yeah, yeah, he um, he was about to become a road agent to, like, the Strompo and some of the others, and uh, 
he's just kind of finishing up here, but uh, he had a great career, really, really had a great career uh, in so many different territories. And, and he was even a WWF tag team champion with uh, Carl Gotch, no less, in the early 70s. So he, he, did, he definitely accomplished a lot in a long career. Oh, way back in 1971, and then I remember he was Sergeant Jacoulet in the AWA in Florida, and I, I definitely preferred that version of Rene Goulet as opposed to, I, I thought, I remember when Ray, Rene Goulet came back to the WWF in early 1980, and oh, almost like you, I was like, wow, this guy, former tag team champion, he's finally back, and now then I was like, you know, after a couple of months, I felt he was one of the most boring wrestlers out there, I'm sorry. Well, I, I, I liked him in that time frame because he was kind of like a, another Danucci type, and, and I always kind of like Danucci. Uh, but uh, when he, he kind of came back again, I don't know if it was 82 or 83, but he was doing this cheesy Michael Jackson's glove gimmick, yes. and he was a heel, and he would just wrestle like open opening match. And it, to me, I kind of almost felt sorry for him, but uh, maybe that was just uh, him trying to pave a way to getting the agent job eventually, so... Well, it all worked out for him. I mean, he was with the WWF as a road agent for a long time. We go to Detroit, New York, the RPI Fieldhouse, February 5th, 1984, home of the legendary Ric Flair versus Terry Funk I Quit match, and I don't know why I didn't go see that, that show. WWF Intercontinental Champion Don Morocco went to a double disqualification with Ivan Putski. Not to make this a big Ivan Putski love fest, but Steve, would you have been shocked or surprised if Ivan Putski had won the Intercontinental Championship at any point, or specifically at this point? I, at this point, I would have been surprised because, you know, he was starting to look a little bit older, and you could tell the WWF was really doing a big youth movement. But as someone who had a, a super record uh, as far as uh, wins and losses, uh, I guess I couldn't have been too surprised if he had won. But, uh, yeah, I guess maybe the smart fan in me knew that uh, his, his days on top were kind of dwindling to a few. Now, I, I didn't realize it at, at this time in 1984. Now we have another one of those strange tag teams. It's Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas defending the WWF Tag Team Championships against Sergeant Slaughter and Tiger Chung Lee. What? Yeah, that is a very weird uh, matchup, and, and also seeing Slaughter on the losing side there. I mean, um, as we would get more into the national expansion, as years would go by and we get more into 87, 88, uh, Vince liked to do this thing where a guy that was about to get a championship match, whether it was the world title or the intercontinental title, he would have them like lose around the horn to somebody, and then and then lo and behold, uh, the next month, all of a sudden, he's like the challenger for the title, and um, maybe they knew that Slaughter was going to get this huge baby face push and have him lose some matches as a heel, and then have him rebound as a baby face. I don't know. There was some method to their madness, but I'm not sure what it was. I am pretty sure by this point they knew they were they were turning slaughter. And finally, Andre the Giant defeats the mass superstar. Um, I I say this all the time, but it's so true. What makes pro wrestling special is like Cal Ripken Jr., huge baseball star in 1984. He didn't come to Troy, New York. Joe Montana, huge football star in 1984. He didn't come to Troy, New York. But Andre the Giant would come to places like Troy, New York. 
Yeah, yeah, you get your money's worth. And uh, I think on our uh, Facebook group for Stick to Wrestling, uh, <laughs> this may have been you writing, John, uh, talking about uh, Kerry Von Erich's brief NWA title reign. And he's uh, defending the title against superstar Billy Graham in some podunk town in Florida, <laughs> a town I've never heard of. And I live in Florida. But uh, it, it's funny about wrestling, just how that plays itself out. Exactly, yeah. All right, on to Edison, New Jersey at the high school gym. Once again, one of the most random things out there. They have a a battle royal, which is won by Pat Patterson. Yeah, yeah, the, the the booker himself went, but uh, he wasn't the booker then, but maybe he was Maybe he was the road agent for this show and uh, allowed himself to win. Uh, maybe. I mean, it, it's, it's the high school gym in Edison, New Jersey, so it kind of doesn't matter, but... I loved it when random stuff like that happened. You know, you'd go to a, a local spot show just like this, and you would see something weird. Uh, same night uh, in Rochester, New York, at the War Memorial, Ivan Putski defeats the Iron Sheik by disqualification. I will bet this was announced as a title match when the show was put together. Yeah, yeah, that would have made perfect sense. Uh, longtime f- a fan favorite, Putski getting a world title match. And I really like this next match of uh, Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson against the uh, future uh, Fuji Vice <laughs> stars Don Morocco <laughs> and Mr. Fuji. Yeah, Morocco and Fuji were notorious running mates going back to their days in the mid-70s in, in San Francisco. It is still a very odd tag team on February 6, 1984. Yeah, and... Uh, Fuji definitely is one of those guys that got so much mileage in the WWF. I mean, if you had told me uh, in 1984 that uh, in uh, a year or two, uh, uh, Mr. Fuji would be wrestling Ricky Steamboat on NBC in the Saturday Night's main event, I wouldn't have believed it, but it did happen. So It, it did happen. Mr. Fuji was, I mean, he was a lifer in the WWF. I mean, he's got a, a reputation or had a reputation as a notorious ribber, but everyone liked him. So <laughs> what can you do? Once again, Andre the Giant beats Mass Superstar for the second night in a row. Uh, also in Japan, we have Tatsumi Fujinami and Akira Maeda against Hulk Hogan and Bret Hart. That's an interesting team. That, that is really interesting, and uh, I, I bet you know the story, John. Uh, it, I've heard it somewhere, but supposedly um, around this time frame, Bret Hart and some of the other WWF guys were in Japan, and I think even Chief J. Strongbow had been there as a road agent, and he says something like, uh, like, I want to be you know, like Hulk Hogan someday or something as far as like his level of success, and I think Strongbow and a couple of the other guys were kind of laughing it off, uh, but then uh, they're all sitting there and Bruiser Brody came in the room and he like uh, approached Brett and shook his hand and said, you know, hey, you're doing really good, man. You know, keep up the good work. And I think when the boys saw that uh, Brody endorsed Brett, all of a sudden they realized that, hey, maybe maybe Brett has something that we don't know about. Yeah, and we'll talk more about Bret Hart because he does start with the WWF uh, later that year mm-hmm. and obviously the beginning of a, a very long run, but I can tell you that on February 6, 1984, I had either never heard of Bret Hart or I had just seen his name in a Kiter magazine. That's it. He got no pub from the After magazines because Stampede and Japan got no pub from the After magazines. Yeah, and I'm sure I would be right there with you. I, I had no clue who Bret Hart was by this point. No, same here. I mean, how? like I said, how could we? 
Next night, we are February 7th. We're in Buffalo, and the WWF uh, is kind of pushing uh, the Mid-Atlantic Territory out of Buffalo because the WWF hadn't been running there. Uh, let me see. We've got Mass Superstar fighting Ivan Putski to a draw. Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson defeat the team of Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee. Andre the Giant beats Sergeant Slaughter by countout. And Tito Santana beats Ma- Magnificent Morocco by disqualification. Solid show for Buffalo, and it drew 6,000. Yeah, that, that's another town uh, kind of comparable to what we were talking about earlier with Cincinnati. Uh, you know, 6,000 was okay. You know, for a big venue like that, you'd think they would do better. But, again, they were, they hadn't really been in the town since, like, 1977. Uh, I think it was the last time the WWF ran there. So it took a while to kind of build their business back up. But as as the Hogan uh, era would move on, it would definitely become a another a very solid city for WWF. All right, let's. right, I'll tell you what, let's take a break from the results. Let's hear Gene Okerlund speak with Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas for review purposes. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Gene Okerlund. Well, I thank you very much, Vince McMahon. Total chaos in the ring, as you saw this week. I want to bring in, if I may, Tony, At- Tony Atlas. Come on in, one half of the world tag team champions, Rocky Johnson. Now you brought us in, so let me say this. The war is just starting, brother. That's the way those Samoans want. If they want to get down, then we'll show you a whole new difference. Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas, brother, because I'm sick, I'm tired, I'm fed up with them guys, and I know my partner feels exactly the same way. Well, the influence of Captain Lou Alfano was quite evident this week. Your thoughts, Tony Atlas, Mr. USA. Well, all I got to say, and I hope that I don't have to say this no more, is the fact that if the Samoan want to get down and inflict the pain, if they want to get K-I-N-K-Y, G-G, then nobody can get more down like that than I can and Rocky Johnson. Now, we are the champions, Samoans. We got it if you like it or not. And there's one more thing that I am, brother, that you have forgotten. What I am, what Rocket is, is 50 stars on a baby blue bat player with 13 stripes. What I am, brother, I am all America. I am white, black, Sonoma, and every other nationality. A man put together. All right. Number one, I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does making not only this show, but the audio sound really good. No, does it sound pristine? No, but it sounds good. And please bear in mind, this is surviving footage from old VHS tapes. Uh, Steve. Tony Atlas self self defining himself as a Chinaman. Yikes! Yeah, I, I, that just turned me off. I, I just uh, I, I just lost interest in the interview right there. Uh, but uh, but those are the times. Uh, lots of politically incorrect stuff and silly stuff that just uh, it turns off today's viewer and turns me off as well. No, I, I keep emphasizing, we didn't think this stuff was cool in 1984 when, you know, watermelon references, believe me, no one that I knew got off on that sort of thing. But it's 1984, 1985, and we're going to keep hearing some of it. We're in a time capsule. Okay, 
WWF returns to Staten Island in the Tottenville High School Gym, February 8th, 1984, headlined by the three Samoans, uh, Afa, Sika, and Samula, against this wild team of Jimmy Snuka, Chief J. Strongbow, and Salvatore Belomo. Just wow. Yeah, that, that, that's just like, uh, you know, grabbing just, you know, three guys off the roster and throwing them together. But uh, but I, I think in those days the fans just like these uh, six man matches seemed a little bit more wild a little bit more uh, anything goes than just your traditional tag team match so that's a good headliner for a small town show. Oh, definitely. And, you know, like I said, it it wasn't the same thing every night, and I really liked that. I missed that about the early 80s WWF. In Osaka, Japan, Hulk Hogan defeats Rusha Kimura via disqualification in a non-title match. Notice that Hulk Hogan has not defended that title yet. Very interesting. I didn't catch that. All right, then we go to Ithaca, New York, same night. Ben Light, Gymnasium. Ivan Putsky and Sergeant Slaughter go to a double DQ. And then we have, once again, a an interesting six-man tag team with Andre the Giant, Rocky Johnson, and Tony Atlas against Don Morocco, Mr. Fuji, and Tiger Chung Lee. There was no connection on television yet between Morocco and Fuji. So, I mean, this just looks odd. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And, uh... And uh, Morocco is still in Albano's camp at this time, and um, I think that transition wouldn't happen for maybe till the end of the year or even into 85. Exactly. Now we have a big-time show. The WWF debuts at the legendary Keel Auditorium in St. Louis Friday night, February the 10th, 1984. Jimmy Snuka pins Tiger Chung Lee, uh, excuse me, pins Mr. Fuji with Tiger, Tiger Chung Lee in his corner. And after the match, Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee attack Jimmy Snuka. They throw salt in his eyes. They beat him up with the kendo stick. I don't get this. Why are you doing this with, with mid-card guys? Yeah, and again, you're talking about St. Louis, a town that uh, isn't into big gimmicks. And here they are, right off the bat, uh, really throwing everything but the kitchen sink at Snuka. So... I guess they wanted to you know, build up for the following month's card. Yeah, Mil Mascaris, uh, legend in St. Louis, pinned Samula with a splash after two flying tackles. Big John Stud, managed by Roddy Piper, defeats Ivan Putski via countout when Putski was distracted by Roddy Piper. So they're still protecting Ivan Putski. Yeah, they, they were definitely keeping him strong here, but uh, not too far after this, you're going to start to see Putski start to lose some matches by DQ. And uh, before you know it, he'll be out of the WWF. Yeah, it's 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 not going. The future's not bright for Ivan, unfortunately. Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch defeat Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas when the referee stops the match because Johnson is bleeding too badly. Yeah, Adonis and Murdoch. Um, I mean, I I don't know how long they were together in WWF. Maybe a year or a year and a half, but. Uh, I think they're definitely, uh, among the smart fans, uh, have to be near the very top of, uh, of the most uh, best-remembered teams. Um, the only teams I can think that maybe get more uh, hype would be probably like the British Bulldogs or you know, the Hearts or even Demolition just for their, their long, longer tenure. But uh, for hardcore working, uh, Donna and Murdoch got to be right near the top. 
they were an excellent tag team, and they're going to be in the spotlight in 1984 in the WWF. Next match, Andre the Giant defeated Dr. D. David Schultz. Uh, I mean, Schultz had just gotten there, and this seems pretty detailed, so it looks like a pinfall. I am very surprised at this result. Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked by that result. Um, I don't know uh, with a discipline reason or to give him a wake-up call, but I, I'm, I'm really shocked by this. Yeah, well, I mean, you figure Andre would beat Schultz, but, like, you know, further down the road, Schultz is still hasn't even faced Hogan, Hulk Hogan yet. Uh, speaking of Hulk Hogan, he defeats Mass Superstar by disqualification when it's revealed that Superstar has an object loaded in his mask. Bill Eady can, you know, rest of his life say, hey, I made invented the first WWF show ever at the Keel. Right, right. That, that is definitely something to put in your... Uh stocking or your pipe uh but uh yeah in in it seems like in these early days they uh were um really um hesitant just to have uh um hogan win cleanly they gave him a lot of uh kind of weird finishes at the start yes and finally we have big john stud uh who wins a thirty thousand dollar 18-man battle royal by last eliminating hulk hogan and andre the giant at the same time uh stud had worked st louis previously under mushnick and obviously he is getting a big push out there right now now this this uh you know you and i like to badmouth the wwf battle royals but this is probably the best one they ever did this is a good one I remember yeah, it was a really good one. It was on, uh, pretty sure it was on All American, and I pretty, pretty sure I think it ended up on one of the Coliseum home videos. But the the whole thing of it made sense because you had all these different stars in there. I was going to see Mascaris in there, and you know Andre, uh, Hoke, and uh, Stud most importantly. And uh, seeing Stud go over, you know, who was not going to beat Andre or beat Hogan in a, in a straight up match, it definitely gave him a, a really nice uh, push. Uh, lifted him, elevated him a bit as he needed that, and that was an exciting battle royal. The only other battle royal I could think that was maybe uh, even close to this, as far as you know, worthwhile to the storytelling, was uh, the one right before WrestleMania three, where Andre won on the Saturday Night's main event and kind of helped him get over even more as a monster heel. Yeah, that was a really good one when he bloodied up Lanny Poffo for real with a headbutt. Um, now yes. we go to Championship Wrestling. February 11th, 1984. Andre the Giant uh, giving the rub to Tito Santana, teaming with him against Butcher Vershawn and Rene Goulet. Butcher Vershawn was kind of old by this point. Yeah, I I just happened to catch one of his matches from this time period on uh, on one of the shows uh, on YouTube, and uh, he looked painfully old. Uh, like I said on another show, he looked old in 1978, and here he is six years later, and um, just really out of place, especially with the guys that are getting the pushes now are much, much younger. Uh, but uh, he did play a very pivotal role in his uh, wedding on TNT, which we'll eventually get to. That w- What a night that was. Uh, Dr. <laughs> D. David Schultz, his push continues on TV. He defeats S.D. Jones. Brian Blair and Eddie Gilbert defeat Bill Dixon and Ken Jugan. Right from the start, Brian Blair stood out to me as a very good worker. Yeah, and, and the, there was something refreshing in him that at that time he was completely without a gimmick. He was completely uh, almost like a new, like a backland type, you know, somebody who just did the wrestling, didn't do anything else, didn't have any color. And um, and they needed people like that just to, you know, add credibility to the proceedings. Yeah. 
I mean, WWF would get to the point where literally everyone had a gimmick. And, I mean, when, when everyone has a gimmick, I don't want to say no one has a gimmick, but you know, it, it, everything gets watered down. Now we get to a major milestone in WWF history. Iron Sheik versus Steve Lombardi. Iron Sheik wins handily. He and Fred Blassie are walking to the dressing room. And Sergeant Slaughter is on his way to the ring for his match. And Sheik and Blassie won't get out of his way. Yeah, yeah, this was really, uh, for those of us that you know, saw it live, or if you go back and watch it now, th- this was something, I mean, I really wish uh, that Vince or AEW or somebody could just get a hold of this clip again. Uh, you talk about getting mileage out of, like, nothing happening. But, you know, in today's wrestling world, there has to be an angle every three minutes or less. There has to be a, a car wreck, an explosion, a guy uh, leaping uh, 20 feet outside the ring. Uh, otherwise, the show stinks. But here, here's two guys, you know, uh, a heel leaving the ring, a, a, a potential good guy entering the ring, and the manager, and they're, they're, they're making moves toward each other, but they're not really doing anything, yet everybody cared, everybody had a vested interest, and uh, much like the Bruno Zabisco thing, it gave you a taste of what could eventually happen. It didn't shove it in your face, it didn't happen instantaneously, instead it was something like like it planted a seed and you said boy i wonder if this will come to fruition someday and of course it did i mean for me personally as soon as i saw it and by the way you know they they get out of each other's way and then Sheik would get in slaughter's path again and they were getting in each other's faces so Sheik was the 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 provoker of the provocateur here and Immediately, to me, Sergeant Slaughter turned babyface. The fans immediately started uh, cheering Slaughter, and you knew what was coming up. And it was just so, it was perfectly organic that these two would be feuding and Sergeant Slaughter would be the babyface, obviously. Yeah, I, I think you used the perfect word, organic. It just seemed natural. It didn't seem forced, or it just seemed to happen organically. And um, they were playing, even though Slaughter was the heel, they were playing his uh, Marine Corps theme. And uh, even though he was still a bad guy, I think people were starting to, uh, in the real you know Reagan uh, USA days of uh, you know USA USA, uh, they were getting on board with that, uh, even though he was technically a heel still, but. Uh, uh, the fans really embraced Slaughter uh, quite quickly after this. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was a baby face by the time his match with John Callahan was over and Slaughter won, won with the Cobra Clutch. Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas, still tag team champions, defeated Bob Bradley and Israel Matia. Bob Bradley, definitely either the winner of the trophy or in the team picture for most mu- most muscular jobber at this point. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he would become uh, Battle Cat, uh, you know, about four or five years after this, and he got a little bit of a push, uh, but um, after Brady Boone had left, but um, he he was okay. I mean, he was one of those guys that really, uh, he, he, I guess you could say he was like the mid '80s Louis Sp- Spicoli. He was like a guy that just you know had a decent look, you know, tried really hard and and got a, a little teeny push, but didn't get pushed too hard. He got a little bit of a push in world class in like '86, '87. Wrestling from the, wrestling at the Chase the same day, Saturday the 11th, 1984. 
two competitive matches, Andre the Giant versus Jerry Valiant. I had no idea Jerry Valiant was still with the WWF by this point. I think like he had just recently come back. Yeah, I, and in fact, I didn't remember him being even there in 84, honestly. Uh, I, I mean, the only time I remember him being around, I think on one of the early Saturday Night Main Event shows, uh, Uncle Elmer did a squash and Jerry Valiant was his opponent, and, and the match lasted all of like nine seconds. So uh, <laughs> he was just about out of wrestling by this point. Yes, he was. He was the one Valiant brother that could actually work a match. Then we've got Andre the Giant defeating Mr. Fuji. And let me see, before we wrap up, Steve, you wanted to talk about something that was said in the Observer in the March 1984 uh, issue, the Wrestling Observer newsletter. A- absolutely. Uh, I-, I thought it was interesting because, uh, you know, here we are talking about WWF results and everything within the WWF is changing and you're getting all these new talents coming in and seeing some of the old guard go away and and you might be thinking to yourself, listening to all this, well, how, how are the other promoters doing or how are they reacting to all of this? And uh, Meltzer has had this to say in the March 84 issue. He says, Ole Anderson and company each week have been splicing together clips from various matches in order to put WWF main eventers such as the Iron Sheik, Tito Santana, Roddy Piper, Paul Orndorff, Tony Atlas, and Greg Valentine in a bad light. Ole even managed to find the old Jerry Lawler Hulk Hogan film of several years ago before the Hulk became an international superstar. Although I personally break up in hysterics watching Ole's new weekly segment, I don't think it will accomplish anything but point out to the fans how bad Ole is, not Vince. The intent of those clips is obvious to even the dumbest of fans, but Ole just showed momentary advantages and then finished with well, Pat Rose beat Tito Santana in that match. And then Meltzer goes on to say, well, Pat Rose didn't. And anyone who had followed Georgia wrestling on WTBS knows full well that the uh, worthless TV jobber pounding on Paul Orndorff didn't, didn't win that match, as Ole and Gordon Soli allude to. So I, I found that quite interesting. I know uh, I know Brian Last has often mentioned uh, uh, Bill Watts talking about Titan Sports on his shows, but here we have Ole uh, uh, talking about how uh, crummy the WWF wrestlers were while they were participating in Georgia Championship Wrestling, and it's quite quite interesting to see that that actually occurred. Now, you see, here's the thing, Steve. Um, I remember reading that, and my reaction when I read it was that I was watching Georgia Championship Wrestling on WTBS almost every Saturday. And I have, you know, tapes and DVDs of the Georgia promotion. I've got a lot from 1983 and 1984. I don't remember this happening once. I don't. (laughs) I, I remember reading it in The Observer and being like, you know, does this guy get a different television show than I do? And then it it dawned on me that they also had a syndicated show out there. So maybe it was on the syndicated show, but even then I've never seen anything from that. So I know Dave's not lying. It's just like, you know, there, there's almost like these alternative universes out there because I, I never saw that happen once. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? Maybe uh, in the, in that era, I don't know if he had a satellite dish. I don't know how he was getting the shows, but 
Uh, maybe he has a live feed or something. Maybe they did some editing. I don't know. But uh, but, but that, that's interesting that you uh, you know had seen the shows but didn't see this. So that's very interesting. Yeah, uh, I remember getting you know some back issues of the Observer in like '87 and reading that, and just being taken aback by it. Just you know, wow, I I never saw that. Anyway, last week I wanted to give everyone a scorecard of the wrestlers from different promotions that the WWF had lured away from other territories, and I have found it. Uh, with two, we have Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, Vince took Roddy, has so far taken Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine. The AWA rings in at three. Uh, WWF has hired Gene Okerlund, Hulk Hogan, and Dr. D. David Schultz. And Georgia is all the way up to nine with Don Morocco, Tito Santana. Morocco left Georgia pretty abruptly, by the way. I don't know what happened there. Tito Santana, Tony Atlas, the Samoans. We talked about this in the opener. The Samoans, you know, just walked out without losing the ta- the Georgia Tag Team titles. The Iron Sheik, Mass Superstar, Paul Orndorff, and Brian Blair. Steve, I also re- remember the Observer uh, talking about, you know, how... It was in one of the yearbooks how some guys from Georgia would just wind up in this black hole where they weren't wrestling anywhere. They they left Georgia and they disappeared for a while. Paul Orndorff definitely fits this. Let me see. Tony Atlas seemed to have disappeared for a while, except for a couple of Houston dates, Mass Superstar. I mean, you know, Vince knew what he was going to do to Georgia as early as late 1982 when he he hired the Samoans and, you know, didn't make them give their notice. Yeah, I think um, I think that, that I mean Vince got some key players from Georgia, uh, the ones you've mentioned. I think the other guys, you know, we talk about guys like uh, the Spoiler, Mister Wrestling Two, uh, some of the other guys just added depth to the WWF roster, especially with all the house shows they were doing. I mean, they had guys like uh, you know Mister Wrestling Two. You know, I think he only made like one appearance on like uh, All American. It was like the, the MSG match against uh, Terry Funk. Uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't getting a TV push. He never appeared on the syndicated shows. But, you know, a guy like him would appear on a lot of the house shows, and especially in Georgia and places where he was known. And uh, and at least he, you know, was making a decent paycheck uh, going to those WWF shows. Uh, we will be seeing uh, Vince McMahon hiring Georgia talent for no other reason than to, than to take them away from Georgia. Okay, next week, here's a teaser from you guys. We did the television from February 11th, 1984. Uh, Once again, no listening for All-Star Wrestling, my apologies. But the first thing we're going to talk about on the next show is the Boston Garden event from February 11th, 1984, a historic night, and I was lucky enough to be there. And as I was doing research for this podcast, I found out that I didn't know what a historic night it was for almost 40 years. This has eluded me, but we will discuss this next week. We will be doing more WWF 1984 next week. Steve and I... I guess we got carried away. We we have talked about February 1984. It was like six hours of conversation. I didn't realize it at the time. That's like 15 minutes per day of February 1984. That's like 15 minutes just talking about 
February 18th, 1984. I don't know, but I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, we will be back next week with what might be the part two of two, February 1984. Um, I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. Thank you, Brian, very much. I want to thank Luke Hippelman, our producer, for all the great work he does every week on Stick to Wrestling. And of course, I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.